Sequel Quest, Episode 96, A Troop Beverly Hills Sequel. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Sequels and prequels and reboots, yeah. If you want fake movies but you can't ride, yeah, yeah. Santa Do 2 is coming tonight, yeah, yeah. Ace Ventura 3 will blow your mind, yeah, yeah. Congo 2 Gorilla Wise. Yikes, yikes. Gremlins 3 had lots to like, like, like. So listen down, listen down. It's sequel time, it's sequel time. Is that you, Adam? That's amazing. That's a word for it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Adam, host of the Sequel Quest podcast, and as you know, your new leader. Now, I could tell you're all special, unique, fabulous little people just rare to go, but I was thinking it might save some time and a little shoe leather if I just introduce you to the other members of our podcast and crew tonight who have all earned oodles of patches. First to Jeff Campbell-Smith, I'm proud to award the big huge patch and the best (laughs) adapting of existing stories patch. You're fabulous. (laughs) Next up for teaching us how to record a podcast and create a unique web presence to Jeremy Hubbard, I award the podcast sciences patch and the internet affairs patch. Jeremy is currently representing us at the annual Wilderness Jamboree and could not join us tonight. But luckily, we have a real no-nonsense woman joining us for this show, ready to receive the perfect guest for this episode patch. She's a mother, she's a writer, she's from Beverly Hills. A gal who's got a black belt in shopping and knows that just because you're in the woods, it's no excuse not to look your best. Welcome, Haley! Thank you. Wow. I am thrilled to be here. This is truly a life highlight, and I feel like I have so much to contribute. I don't even know where to start. Oh, and we are going to get to that. I mean, this is 20 years in the making, this conversation. (laughs) Just to catch you all up, Jeff and I went to high school with Haley, and her arrival on our campus was received with quite a bit of fanfare, because when we all learned that she had come from living in Beverly Hills, there was a a certain star quality that came along with that. I mean, I, I just want to interrupt you, Adam. I did live south of Wilshire. So if you've seen Clueless, I was kind of like slums of Beverly Hills because I was south of Wilshire. But thank you. That that means a lot. So, so more Natasha Leone than Alicia Silverstone. Yeah. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I'll blend it. A blend of both the black belt and shopping still applies. <laughs> you know, Haley quickly got leads in all the plays and the musicals. And Haley, I'm not sure if you know this, but I actually turned down a senior girl who invited me to be her date to homecoming when I was a sophomore so that I could ask you to be my date. <gasps> and you said yes. No. <laughs> 
And it was a fun night. We went as the skipper, Ginger. First of all, I had only been to one other school dance ever in my life before that. And it was the most fun I had ever had. It was so much fun. And then we never spoke to each other again. That was it. And then here's the thing, though. So as we started discussing now, Haley, there are so many films focused on Beverly Hills. You know, it was portrayed as a land of excess filled with class struggles, funny cops from out of town, people who were down and out. The aforementioned Alicia Silverstone and even Chihuahuas. TV shows like Beverly Hills, 90210, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and it made it seem like a paradise. But what was life like really growing up in Beverly Hills for you? So I want to take you back to Roxbury Park soccer fields. The year is 1986. This is a typical game for me. First of all, I'm I'm on the AYSO squad, the Golden Tigers. I grew up thinking it was normal for Orenthal James Simpson, OJ Simpson, to come <laughs> and hang out on the sidelines because my soccer coach was Robert Kardashian, and I played soccer with Kim Kardashian. And when her sex tape came out, my mom called me and she was like, do you remember Kimberly Kardashian from your soccer team? She made a porno. So that's about it. There was definitely a lot of weird excess. I went to a New Year's party every year at my friend Mikey's house and Magic Johnson and his kids would go and they had like a fake snow machine and you'd go sledding. And there were famous people everywhere. Like my mom told me a story today of being at Nathan Owls, which is a very storied deli, and Milton Burl saw me and picked me up, and I was like, Mom, it, it's kind of creepy the way you uh, talk about it now, and she goes, it was great. It was great. It was one of the <laughs> finest moments that Milton Burl picked you, and I was like, I don't know that this is a plus. So there's a lot of weird fantasy moments, but there's also a lot of weird stuff that happened when I was a kid because I was friends with a lot of kids whose parents were producers and directors and in Hollywood who faced a bunch of scandals when we were growing up. Heidi Fleiss scandals and big lawsuits and public shaming. And so, you know, you grew up a little faster when you're there because you also walk into a uh, bathroom in high school and girls are doing cocaine and it's not a big deal during finals when like, no, that's uh, kind of a big deal. But other than that, you know, it's kind of just a small town and one that I like to avoid unless I really have to go visit my parents, mostly because I don't want the pressure of having to put on makeup to get a coffee. I don't want to deal with that. Here's the question. That's obviously, as you're mentioning there, everybody in town seems to be a person of note. So where did your family fit in and how is it that, uh, you know, what was your, your dad's occupation that said, yes, you belong in Beverly Hills? Well, so I'm actually in a unique position in that both of my parents grew up in L.A. And that's a that's kind of crazy because people in L.A. are known to moving to L.A. to pursue their passions. Both my grandparents lived here on both sides and they're actually buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is it's a really cool place to go in the summer. You guys, they have fantastic outdoor movie screenings. In the right. Cemetery. Yes. Very chill. And I went once and tagged myself on Facebook and my great aunt was like, just so you know. Your great-grandparents are buried there. <laughs> Think about it next time. So was there a culture shock for you in moving to Orange County? Because your family only stayed in our neck of the woods like a little over a year. So yeah. what made you move back to Beverly Hills? And what was your experience like arriving there? 
So to answer your last question, when I was born, my dad was a news producer for ABC. And by the time he had three and then four kids, he realized he wanted to change careers. And so he ended up moving to Beverly Hills for the schools because it's a really fantastic school system. And Adam, I know that you have a very in-depth knowledge of all things pop culture. So perhaps you'll remember the Andrea Zuckerberg storyline from the second season of 90210 when Andrea Zuckerberg moves out of the school district and has to move in with her grandmother to keep going to the school. I had to do that when my parents moved to Mulholland Drive because we were two blocks outside of the school district. (laughs) I had to move in with Teresa Terrace and like pretend that I lived with her because the schools were so good in Beverly Hills that that's why we stayed. And my dad got a job in 1997 and moved us all down to Orange County. And it was a massive culture shock because I was one of a handful of Jews versus 81% of my school was Jewish in Beverly Hills. And also Beverly Hills isn't really suburban in that like, yeah, there's wide streets, but there's no chain restaurants. You know what I mean? Like I was talking to my best friend who I grew up with right before we started recording. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm doing a podcast with two guys that I went to high school with in Irvine. And she said, are you going to talk about spoons? I love spoons. <laughs> that that was so exciting. Oh, spoons. Yes. Yes. Like she would come and visit me and she'd be like, what is this? You go to Denny's? And I'm like, there's Denny's or spoons. Don't do both in one night. Irvine felt a lot more ideal idyllic than Beverly Hills because there was a lot of classic surgery and tragedy and general sadness mixed in with BMWs. Uh, There was certainly way fewer Persian kids. We had Nassim and Irvine and that was it. Oh, wait. And Omid Abdahi, who lived around the corner from me, versus 52% of my school was Persian. But yeah, it was a huge culture shock. Like I would have never thought of ever trying out for cheerleading. But by the end of my first year, I was like, yeah, if I stay, I'm going to like totally go out for the cheer squad. <laughs> and my best friend was like, what are what, 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 are, what are, there's more than three girls on the squad. And I said, yeah, it's very, you know, like people wear ribbons in their hair. And she was like, on purpose, this is amazing. So it was kind of reverse for me that like Irvine and Orange County kind of felt like this picture perfect kind of America. And then I had to go back to like cynicism and tremendous wealth, which is uh, very odd. And, you know, O.J. Simpson coming to your soccer games past 1996 wasn't so cool anymore yeah well and it's interesting yeah because again you know you were here we we had a lot of fun doing shows together and hanging out and then you were gone and it was kind of a shock to us we we're like oh she's gone that, that was a great year <laughs> <laughs> but bye Haley. and then what was interesting is i remember that nasim and i you know again we were in awe of, of la and in beverly hills and that whole scene and so we went to see you when you went back to attending beverly hills high school and so we got oh, to yeah. see you in a production of the music man no hello dolly hello oh dolly. no you're right it was it was hello dolly i have a lot of feelings about that production <laughs> well we felt that we're like she's in the chorus I know. Is in the chorus. <laughs> I know that's because mr joel pressman me over it was a very traumatic time in my life <laughs> can you believe he gave the part to a junior i oh. mean had a lot of therapy i've let it go but i couldn't believe it now as we close out here on the on the beverly hills experience so obviously we've seen beverly hills center 2 and 0 rest in peace luke perry you know we have uh, also our uh, our experience with clueless when you talked about you know 
girls doing lines in the bathrooms and things like that. Was high school that much different, would you say, compared to the Orange County experience in terms oh of God. dedication yeah. to studies or other extracurricular well, activities? Teachers, especially for the seniors, were really, really academically rigorous. And there was one class I was in that capped at 15 kids, and everybody now has at least one or two graduate degrees, and their PhDs, and their JDs. So there was that track. And then there was girls who had Prada backpacks who, when the college scandal came out earlier this week about kids paying in for college, there were plenty of those stories when I was growing up of just like, oh yeah, so-and-so's daddy gave $2.3 million to USC. They made a library, but she only got in for spring semester. So there were a lot of kids who could pay their way to get into bigger thing. And so why don't you tell us a little bit now, just after all this, you know, you, you've had a performance background, you love entertainment and things of that nature. So what are you doing these days? Where has that love and that excitement and that talent, I'll say it, taken you? Well, so I'm still performing. I'm a comedian and I also write and produce. I've written for Brian Cranston and Comedy Central. I executive produced for Jennifer Lopez and the newly reunited Jonas Brothers which was very fun. And I work with studios like CBS and ABC to develop content. I've written for Vice. I've been on The Moth. And I had a very risque performance on The Bachelorette a few years ago. I was made into a gif. I was not a contestant. I was a performer. But I'm still performing plenty. I do one-woman show, two-woman sketch shows with my comedy partner. And every day is a new adventure in Hollywood as a Hollywood mom. Oh, and we have one in particular we're going to get to shortly, but we what we should mention is all this Beverly Hills talk adds up to the fact that tonight we are ready to discuss the film Troop Beverly Hills from 1989, which celebrates its 30th year since its release in theaters, actually this Sunday. So we're right on top of it. Very exciting. So we thought we'd let our special guest here give us a little idea of what Troop Beverly Hills is all about. There were we're going to talk about our experience with the film. Shelley Long discovers that when the going gets tough, the tough go camping in Troop Beverly Hills, a comedy about lifestyles of the rich and outrageous. Flamboyantly wealthy Phyllis Neffler has everything money can buy, a drop-dead Beverly Hills mansion, a classic rolls, furs, jewelry, and designer gowns. It's a Van Runkle. Isn't it fabulous? The one thing she doesn't have is her husband, Freddie, who's leaving her for good. Maybe. Determined to prove she's still the creative, energetic woman Freddie once loved, Phyllis throws luxury into the wind and becomes the leader of her daughter's wilderness girls troupe. But how much can this chic cookie take before she crumbles? Is saving her marriage really worth trading Gucci bags for sleeping bags? Not to mention actually touching bugs featuring cameos by robin leach kareem abdul jabbar pia zadora frankie avalon annette funicello dr joyce brothers and cheech marin shelly long blazes new comedic trails and this hilarious trial by campfire that leaves the wilderness wilder than ever bravo Thank you. <laughs> 
Now, Haley, Jeff and I were both Boy Scouts. In fact, for our birthday party one year at Jeff's house, Jeff and I share the same birthday, different years. Do you really? Yeah. Yes, we have the same birthday. And it was one particular year, our female friends actually stripped Jeff down to his boxers, made him put on his Boy Scout uniform, and then gave him cutesy birthday kisses on the cheek while I had to watch. Completely jealous. Unsure. Had to. Uh... Oh, well, I was there campaigning for some birthday kisses myself in the spirit of fairness. And our friend Orlina kindly obliged with that. So it was very nice. But the question that becomes, Haley, you played soccer, Beverly Hills. Were you ever a Girl Scout? You mean, was I a member of Troop 4400 Troop Beverly Hills? Of course I was, Adam what? and Jeff. It's an actual member of Troop Beverly Hills. This is a major get. That's right. Now, how would you explain that experience to people? How, how well does it match up to what we're presented with in the film? Or was it uh, maybe not as uh, excessive? Here's what I remember. I remember being in a few mansions of the very wealthy girls in our troop because, duh, of course their mothers would, like, host the uh, Girl Scout meetings. And I remember painting flower pots. I remember giving flower pots to old people and I remember having a pool party. And I also remember coming home with my order form for cookies and my mom saying I could go to three houses with my older sister. And then my dad saying she's not going anywhere. We don't want her getting kidnapped and took my order form to his office and (laughs) robbed me of the opportunity to be a freckled, adorable braided haired little kid going door to door trying to sell stuff and my parents just bought 20 boxes each and I would just eat Thin Mints for months. (laughs) So you didn't get to go over to Mr. Simpson after soccer practice and be like would you like some cookies OJ? You know I bet the Kardashians probably had the edge on that one. That's true. (laughs) They probably did. They probably did. But as we continue on this topic that I I have to say that, you know, Troop Beverly Hills is a film that some are familiar with. Others maybe saw five minutes while flipping channels in the 90s. Maybe a few like me are obsessed with it. But I'm curious to know, how did you all first become familiar with the film? So, Jeff, how about for you? Jeff, bring it. Um, it would probably be like you were talking about, Adam, flipping by on TV, because this was one that seemed like it was always on in the middle of the day, uh, especially <laughs> on a weekend, I should say, on like Channel 5. Yep. So I feel like I must have seen probably the middle 15 minutes of it at least a dozen times in any given year. Yeah, it was a KTLA favorite, for sure. There was Born in East L.A. with Cheech, oh, you know, God, there was yes. Troop Beverly that Hills. That was an early afternoon one, yeah. Yeah, then Twins, yeah. always, you'd get the theme song for Twins. Good. <laughs> so how about you, Haley? Was this something that you knew about? Was this popular in the Beverly Hills circle? Infamous, perhaps? Hold on to your knickers, because I actually have a story about this. I knew when they were starting to shoot it, and I was in kindergarten with a kid named Benji Schulman, and his big sister, Emily, is in the movie. She was also on a show called Small Wonder. Yes, Harriet. (laughs) And she's the redhead in the movie, and I adore 
adored her when I was growing up because she was on Small Wonder and I like was obsessed with her and I would give her hugs every day after kindergarten when she picked up her brother. And I just remember like running up to her one day and she was telling me that she had just come from set and she wasn't going away and she was shooting a something about Girl Scouts. And she said it was going to be called Troop Beverly Hills. And I had a promise to see the movie. And I was like, duh, Emily, of course I will. So I was very excited to see it because she was in it. And it really was like life mimicking art. I mean, it was about my community. But also in looking back, not to jump ahead, but in looking back, because I had to actually study the movie for a project a few months ago, the cast of characters of the parents are very reflective of actual like Beverly Hills parents. So I would like to give a shout out to the original uh, screenwriter. And I have a story about that as well. The story was that the woman who wrote the original story for the movie had just gotten a divorce and she was a Beverly Hills mom and she had decided to become her kid's brownie leader and was telling a friend about it who was in the industry. And the friend was like, you should write this like you. This is a movie. You should write this. And that's how the movie came to be. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great story. She then she happened to remarry uh, a producer. And so he said, we were going to make this. So, yes, yeah, yeah. Austin for she's great i love those experiences now i have to say for me i've been a diehard fan of this movie since about 1990 when my parents brought it home from a now defunct video rental and music media store called the warehouse where <laughs> the warehouse in fact uh, we eventually bought that same rental copy when the store was selling off their stock and i still own it to this day so this movie and ghostbusters 2 were in constant rotation in my family vcr growing up but True Beverly Hills is probably, no exaggeration, top three all-time favorite movies. It's just a film I could watch any time and quote it endlessly and still get a laugh out of it. I mean, it's just a true delight for me. And my fanaticism has actually evolved into, very recently, collecting all the American home video releases. So I have it in formats, you know, in various VHS releases, Laserdisc. Of course, I have the DVD and the Blu-ray also. But I'm now moving into to the foreign releases so i have copies from spain and turkey and the uk right now i have a friend in brazil who just got me a copy who's said to get out i'm trying to get a guy in france to ship me one and i have to get a copy from finland which has the best adaptation of the title which is beverly hilson bimbo partio <laughs> and if i ever start a scandinavian pop group like abba or ace of bass it will definitely be the name of my act bimbo partio because it's fantastic um in fact in my single days you know just talking about craziness surrounding this film i actually took a girl on a date or rather invited her on the date because we were going to see Troop Beverly Hills at a Revival House screening. This is after I asked her out with a DVD I burned, which contained a scene from a comedy horror movie that Jeff and I made way back when called Rake Man, uh, wherein I played a character called Mr. Shelley Long. I was infatuated with Troop Beverly Hills and dances to the Cookie Time song while grilling hot dogs on a barbecue. It was basically an alternate reality version of myself, you know, showing what would have become had I never married my lovely wife. So we'll post a link to that scene in our social media pages so you can see it and deal with it. <laughs> 
and by the way, audience, I have watched a segment of this and it is truly fantastic. When did you, <laughs> what year did you guys make that? That was 2010, I believe. And that's a character that Jeff had played many years at a Halloween haunted front yard. <laughs> I mean, that was his part. I love it. And I adapted it. Some might say ruined it. But, yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, I think the reason I connect so much with the film is though I did not grow up in Beverly Hills, Irvine was still a fairly affluent city filled with many wannabe yuppie parents aspiring to lives of luxury. So I also recognize those archetypes I feel being represented in the movie, especially the Phyllis Neffler character, because she reminds me so much of my own mother. Yeah, you know, not in appearance, but just in attitude, because my mom is endlessly kind. She's optimistic. She's full of energy. She's creative. She's a little dingy sometimes in the best and most endearing way, mom. I know you're listening. <laughs> and she was my Cub Scout den mother. So Phyllis wanting to be there for her daughter, being willing to take charge of this troubled troop and create a special experience that goes a little over the top in terms of production, you know, is exactly what my mom would do and did do so it's very special to me for that reason jeff it's still okay for you to have an opinion about this movie <laughs> oh, I wasn't don't worry but that being said you know it's, it's a classic it's like slobs versus snobs except in this case the slobs are the aggressors you know <laughs> there is discrimination against the wealthy and affluent now while i maintain that this is a flawless film and i challenge you to point out to be something wrong in the, the script or the acting or the content I do not believe it is possible to dislike this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious for you, Jeff, how do you feel about the movie overall? So, did you seriously say this is a perfect movie? Can you find anything wrong with it? <laughs> I mean, from just a, a pure entertainment standpoint. That's a ridiculous statement. <laughs> Well, I would just list the ones that you just talked about. The acting and the performances <laughs> and the characters. In all reality, it's fine. It's like people that like Spies Like Us and people that like Three Amigos and people that like, you know, those dumb kind of corny 80s movies. That's fine. You can like those. Like You're one of those people, Jeff. Uh, yeah, but I realize how bad a movie they are. <laughs> They're bad movies. That doesn't mean the you can't Spies Like Us a bad movie? Is yes, it it's a very bad movie. <laughs> but it's the same thing with like, like when we talked about Congo, there was that part that after we finished the podcast, I was like, Adam, you do realize this is a bad movie, right? This was done very poorly. And and I'm not sure that we're always on the same page about that one. So <laughs> and it's that interesting thing that it's kind of and it's it's somewhat of the Oscar debate is that, you know, the Oscars don't really reward. Did you do what you wanted to do well? Like, that's not their goal because there are some movies that are just like, hey, we wanted to make a crappy movie. And that Batman Adam West movie is brilliant. They wanted to make it crappy and they succeeded. And <laughs> it's, but it's tough to think about things that way. At least for me, I kept rooting for the other Girl Scout. The Red Feathers? I rotted them. Oh, Culver I found the City. Hills, especially <laughs> Shelley Long so annoying that i was like someone put her just like get rid of her she is the worst possible girl scout leader and everyone knows it and it is interesting like you're saying Haley, is that i think the level to which this 
could possibly reflect reality is so far away from so many other people's reality that it just doesn't, it seems implausible. It's like no way there are human beings that are actually like, it doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like when we see on the flip side, like Beverly Hillbillies and we see the exact opposite of that. We're like, no way. No way people are actually acting like this somewhere out there. And I mean, I guess if you go to Jeb's farm or something like that, you you see people like that. But yeah, so anyway, it just it just didn't resonate for me. Okay. I mean, because I, I mean, I'll, I'll mention, if the film has one failing, it's simply that their pop culture references are so specific to 1988 when this was being filmed <laughs> that there are so many cheap laughs based on cameos that people today are just not going to get. Yeah, the P is Adora cameo dr joyce brothers you know like yeah all of that and even like like like, there was like you know news people in the news like lily whose parents are referred to as dictator and mrs dictator you know are based on real life imelda marcos and ferdinand marcos who were political leaders of the philippines they amassed a multi-billion dollar fortune through embezzled funds which most famously materialized in the form of over a thousand pairs of luxury shoes that was a sign of imelda marcos yeah fabulous shoes though so that was like a big news story. And then in the movie, you see that this guy, this actor, George Christie at the party, ask her, how many pairs of shoes do you really have? You know, so it was making headlines right then, but nobody now has any idea who she was or what that was all about. Unless you were from the Philippines, I guess. So, I mean, I, I guess if you want to look at it that way, it's like they were making it in the moment of the moment, but at the same time, it's a, it's a time capsule. What about for you, Haley, as a, as a professional writer who's, someone who's in the industry when you look at the the execution of the film the conception of the film is there anything you can nitpick i don't want to because this is such a nostalgic movie for me and there's two things that i think are so fantastic one is shelly long is such a brilliant comedic actress i don't care if she's reading the phone book she is so so incredible in this role. Sorry, Jeff. She is so incredible in this role because what she does is she takes the trope of poor little rich girl and she subverts it to make you really connect with her and really care for her. And the second thing for me is I love stories about underdogs and when you grow up from Beverly Hills, you do this thing and every single person who grew up in Beverly Hills does this. When you're on a plane or you're at summer camp, you're meeting somebody for the first time, you're, you know, moving to Irvine to go to school for a year and people say, where are you from? You kind of very slowly close in geographically and you try to go as long as you can without saying Beverly Hills because of the assumptions that it comes with. And so people will be like, where are you from? And I'm like, Los Angeles. We're in Los Angeles. Uh, West-ish, West-ish, you know, like Venice Beach, what street, what neighborhood? Like people are really interested in where you're from in L.A. because every neighborhood has status. And as a kid, I would go really long without being like, you know, they'd finally be like, oh, well, where'd you go to school? And you say Beverly Hills High School. And it's almost like you blew your cover. So you're already kind of an underdog in people's eyes. It happened a lot in college, too. And because people have assumptions and my parents like I didn't grow up in a mansion, even though my mom 
would love to just spend all day shopping at Neiman Marcus if she could, but there's kind of like a stigma to it. So I connected as a kid with this idea of you're already being judged. You already have to prove yourself. People don't think that you're X, Y, and Z. And it's also something that I've had to carry with me into my marriage because I married a man from a very tiny town in Iowa who is a lumbersexual and he loves camping. (laughs) And he actually proposed to me on a camping trip. And it's like real camping. There wasn't even a bathroom. And he has kind of taught me over the years, it's better for me to unlock my Berkeley hippie and like, it's okay. Nobody's going to be upset if you are just kind of crunchy granola for a while. And I have grown to love camping, but I also have grown to love camping if I can make paella when I'm doing so. Every year we have a very fun, elaborate 4th of July trip in a different forest somewhere in California. And I always channel my Phyllis Neffler. Last year, I made peaches roasted on figs with a scented cream because why <laughs> Why not? She would do it. And we're making fondue this year. There you because go. Yes. Fondue it. So, you know, there's an elegance that Phyllis Neffler provides that I think everyone can inject into their rustic but glamorous camping adventures. Exactly. Yeah. Just make the most of it. Let it be your version of of whatever experience. And, you know, I think it's okay to be an underdog. There's a pressure to always prove that you belong. And I think those two things really make the movie timeless. Jeff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Don't buy it. Sorry. But I mean, truth be told, yeah, Shelley Long is fantastic in this film. I've seen her other work. I mean, she was doing movies prior to Cheers, you know, so most people knew her from Cheers. Maybe she's doing stuff like Night Shift and Caveman. And, uh, you know, but she also, like, what I just watched this week that I had not seen before is... Uh, outrageous fortune oh god she's so good that is an amazing performance i couldn't i didn't think she could top this but you know as phyllis neffler in that one i was just like amazing amazing so she's done a lot of fun work over the years and yet this movie also just the troupe itself is made up of some actresses who and that's what i love about this movie is it really is i for some reason i'm always drawn to these films about like groups of friends that are females like Uh, the babysitters club and all that stuff i love those movies there's something about it that's like uplifting to me but this movie like you have very recognizable young faces from 80s television you have amy foster who played the rich girl Margot on punky brewster you have previously mentioned emily shulman oh your favorite person i've i've loved her too yeah uh kelly martin you know who was on our house and life goes on that's true yes Heather Hopper from Good Morning Miss Bliss, which was the precursor to Save by the Bell. She did not make the transition to Bayside when, <laughs> when that uh, series got picked up and, and reformatted. And then, of course, Carla Gugino. She's so pretty. She's great. She was on Good Morning Miss Bliss also, which was interesting. And then, of course, Jenny Lewis, who became known for her musical career, but I'll always know her from this movie in The Wizard. And Weidtraub Entertainment Group, who produced this film, they produced a lot of movies with TV actors and got them up on the big screen because there's another one called She's Out of Control with Tony Danza. And his crazy teenage daughter. 
Yes, played by uh, the amazing Amy Dolans. I actually have a very fun story with that in that I uh, have a friend who does a lot of celebrity interviews, especially like celebrities from the 80s. So he's like, I'm going to interview Amy Dolans that I was showing him. I have a copy on VHS of She's Out of Control. He's like, do you want me to get her to autograph that for you? I was like, yes. So, you know, he got her address. I sent it out to her. She sent it back. And then he's like, by the way, I'm going to this convention. Tony Danza is going to be there. Do you want me to get him to autograph that for you? So... (laughs) a fully autographed copy of she's out of control but that's amazing there's so many great faces and i mean i particularly have a fondness for your uh, velda played by betty thomas that is just a a tour de force performance and i just feel like there's there's a lot of very fun performances overall but do you guys have a favorite moment or jeff did they manage to get a laugh out of you at least out of one of the uh the cameos by the not one that stands out to be honest with you that i'm like oh i love that one sequence i mean the banter between velda and annie it was that very kind of stereotypical 80s villain back and forth but that's still enjoyable so that that's that's kind of what stuck out in my mind I think. this film has endured it has cult status and for good reason. But I think what's unique about it is, again, it is, you know, a female-focused movie. Like you said, it's it may be tropes, but we didn't see it organized in this way before and with these types of characters before and in this setting. And I, and I, I think it's it's pretty fun for that reason, but also, like, the, even the villain in this case is a woman who is, like, no-nonsense and very protective what it means to be a wilderness girl. And so it's something that stands out from others, like you said, Jeff, that are just kind of, like, standard of the 80s that you're going to see, you know, on, on video store shelves. You know, maybe it was a little bit ahead of its time in that way, even with Outrageous Fortune. Like I just said, when I saw that, I'm like, oh, two female leads in this comedic, antagonistic, buddy comedy type thing. You know, it's something you didn't see very often. But what about for you, Haley? Is there a moment that stands out? It's not a moment. It is an unseen force in the movie. And that is actually the costume design. Oh, yes. Um, and whoever put together the hat budget. That's for sure. <laughs> forget her first name but van runkle is actually the name of the costume designer and she Del- i think it's dolores van runkle and she really brought shelly long's character just to life the her costumes are so ridiculous and so fabulous and so over the top and she's never in the same wilderness girls couture you know from one scene to the next yeah and it's just incredible i remember being a kid and like one of my favorite 80s and like girl movie tropes is always the makeover sequence and just how there's no make under for her everything is over the top and everything is fabulous and everything is very phyllis neffler and i just loved that growing up yeah i mean that that absolutely is something you notice like you can't take your eyes off okay what's she wearing in the next scene what she's just flipping open this cape yeah it's like now she's got you know when they're out on the actual wilderness survival jamboree situation she's got you know those kind of classic pants you imagine for some director from the 20s you know (laughs) she's wearing like a pith helmet and a fur when they do their first fondue overnight and before they stay at the beverly hills hotel and then they're like supposed to be on a camping trip and the next morning she traipses in with this like marabou feather 
<laughs> robe that's so fabulous and i'm like was she gonna wear that in the cold i also want to say to people out there who don't go camping who are going to go camping for the first time and you want to make it fabulous the only thing you don't want to make fabulous when you are camping outside for the first time is really your sleepwear you need to go comfy you need three pairs of long johns it's really cold when you go camping <laughs> do not wear marabou you will be eaten by a bear Yes. Stay safe, folks, if you learn nothing else from our discussion tonight. Now, here's the thing. So the film did not perform terribly well. I mean, 1989 was a very crowded year for films. That was one of the best years for film. I mean, not just for, like, blockbusters. I mean, we had big movies. You had Batman. You had Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. To a lesser extent, Ghostbusters 2, but I always count it. I think Lethal Weapon 2 came out that year. Just so many that... It was kind of hard if you didn't have a big name or a built-in audience, you just weren't going to probably get the box office that uh, they would hope for. So this movie, you know, kind of went away. Like we said, got a lot of play on TV. And there was actually a Troop Beverly Hills Unauthorized, which was a live stage musical that was put on. You can watch it on YouTube. It's very fun. They mix in a lot more like classic 80s pop songs. So you're getting, was like, it at the Rockwell? I think I missed it. I think it was at, I think it was up here at the Rockwell well yeah i think you're right and it's a lot of fun so i mean there, there's a little bit of that but I'm, I'm just surprised there's not more revival screenings people haven't been able to you know do a cast reunion and things of that nature because there's plenty of articles like the 25th anniversary you know where are they now troop beverly hills and and uh, here's the original filming locations and things like that but uh, at the same time i just feel like this is you know 30 years that's something to celebrate so if anybody's got a line to any of the uh, original members of the troop we you know Haley knows Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I still did. I will say to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, Adam. Did you know that Kim Kardashian had a Troop Beverly Hills themed baby shower at what? the Beverly Hills Hotel? Comes full circle, guys. You should have invited me, Kim. Should have invited me. I have a picture <laughs> with true. her and her dad. Come on. Playing soccer. Yeah. Don't you remember? Yeah. We were terrible <laughs> together. Come on. But here we are. 30 years on. We never got a sequel to this film. Again, not a whole lot of, uh, you know, there's not a movie novelization. There was never an animated sequel series despite the awesome john k creator of ren and stimpy opening sequence with all oh, the credits so good. that was his first big break into being in charge and doing something like that so Thanks it's big yeah absolutely beach boys baby but let's talk a little bit about that then because Haley, word has it that you have uh, had a little bit of a connection to the troop beverly hills world and the possibility of its return what can you tell us i may have been doing some research and some development and some pitching around a troop beverly hills related project and all i can say that i know is that don't be surprised if a feature reboot may come to a theater near you in the next few years. And I hope that whoever does it is loyal. And if not, if you are the person writing this and you are not me, you need to call Adam Pope and <laughs> he needs to tutor you on all things Phyllis Neffler. Oh, yes. And tonight, we're going to get into a little bit of that. We're going to share with you our ideas for a Troop Beverly Hills sequel. Will they make their way into the final production? Who's to say? But it's a, it's an exciting time. And while I don't know that we are going to get Haley's official pitch, I think we're going to get a, a very exciting story. So, Haley, do you want to kick us off? 
I do. And I went back and forth a lot on when to start the sequel, if I wanted to start it in 1989 or if I wanted to start it in 2019. I went with 1989. And... What has happened is the Troop Beverly Hills has obviously won the Wilderness Girls Jamboree, and they're the Calendar Girls, and everything is going swimmingly. Velda Plunder is in a low-security women's prison where she belongs, but she can make it because <laughs> she's from Culver City, and they're hardened over there on Washington Boulevard and Slauson. They're much rougher cuts of people and everything is going well in Beverly Hills until the apocalypse strikes and <laughs> everything is swiped out in the American infrastructure military gone National Guard gone maritime people whatever they're called sailors whatever they are gone everyone's gone and all we have left are like a few mail carriers and some boy scouts and troop beverly hills who is at the new jamboree and that's how they've been protected from the melee and they need to unite to fight off the apocalypse now the first thing that they will want to do is because they are super wealthy they obviously have luxury underground bunkers which we get to see it's like under the malibu hills and mountains so it can't get burned down and we have like a great planning meeting there and phyllis neffler is like working up all the parents and the kids that they're all going to sacrifice but it'll be fabulous it'll be fabulous uh, and she mixes martinis and she's back together with her husband so that's great because they're going to need his muffler parts to construct weapons there's obviously a montage of constructing apocalypse chic wear um from like the new gucci collections and because it's the sequel we have a much bigger budget for music supervision and cameos so expect Cindy Crawford to pop by, no big deal, maybe Madonna, whoever's going to be in this like Malibu lair. They eventually realize after they go out to fight the zombies that they're going to need some help. So in Act 2, the girls and Phyllis Neffler uh, go to the low security women's correctional facility to break out Velda Plunder. <laughs> who now is forced between a, a few things. One, her daughter and her daughter's best friend, Tori Spelling, who has gotten a nose job, are really pissed at her. And they're aggro, like they've kind of become militia, like little girl militia, um, almost like you would see in an anime movie. They're super hardcore and they're really pissed at her for everything that she did to get in the way of their success the year prior at the Wilderness Girls Jamboree. And um, she obviously has to have a battle sequence with them and kill Tori Spelling, which is fine. <laughs> and then Phyllis needs to convince Velda to work with them. So it's kind of a reckoning of what happens in the third act of the movie when we're at the Wilderness Girls Jamboree and they still win even though they're carrying Velda. But eventually Velda gets her chance to shine behind the trigger of like this massive machine gun made with all of Phyllis Neffler's husband's um, muffler parts and they kill the zombies and then have a fabulous beach party in Malibu it's very well catered caviar for all the end wow <laughs> can you believe it I, she has I, trumped I, me for craziness. This is what I say. Well, my thought is that yours is going to be so reverent and holy to the greatest movie of all time. Right? 
You wouldn't dare put any of your girls into danger or anything like that. This is true. Well, Jeff, where are you going to take it then? Let's hear this. How do you make a Troop Beverly Hills that you want to see? Okay, so for me, my sequel would be called Troop Culver City. It would take place two years after the original movie and focusing in on Velda, who is still working at Kmart. She's humiliated, but of course she never sees Phyllis or any of the other Troop Beverly Hills because of course they would never stoop to go inside of a Kmart. So Velda works with Angie, who is somewhat similar to Annie, where she's kind of this toady-like bagger who really looks up to Velda's self-confidence and how she carries herself. But one day the word comes down that this Kmart was going to be turned into a Sears, but because sales are so low, it's just going to be demolished, and it's actually going to be turned into a parking lot for a Neffler's Mufflers. And so, of course... Phyllis comes in to survey the new place, doesn't even recognize Velda, but just is kind of looking around at like what the new parking lot for her husband's muffler store is going to look like. Which at that point, that's the last straw for Velda. Velda goes back to her army days where she relies on her army training to whip the store into shape. And so, of course, then we would have an extended ridiculous training montage where she would be taking this crew of misfits and actually turning them into a a lean, mean fighting machine that's going to be like the most efficient Kmart around. Because obviously then this becomes a character... It, it is about that bad news bears sort of an idea. So the characters do become pretty important. So I would have Richard, who would be a large black man who's mostly silent. Angie, who's a Latin mom, who's also working two jobs. Uh, Alberto, who's a Latin college student, who's kind of a know-it-all. You've got Francie, the 80-year-old chain smoker who always is talking about, well, in my day. You've got Louise, who's the 19-year-old valley girl. Philip, who's a 21-year-old guy who's slightly effeminate but has an obvious but silent crush on Louise. And last but not least is Wilton, uh, who is the boss. And uh, Wilton is a 45-year-old divorcee who is just kind of... He barely slumps his way into work, and he's a defeated man who has just kind of given up. So Velda very quickly kind of pushes him out of the way to take over and whipping this this band of misfits into shape. So through all of the training, and of course it would be the ridiculous, like, sell a sell a stick of butter and then do five push-ups or whatever it would be. But that only results in a slight improvement of sales. And so the time is getting short. So Velda comes up with an idea when she sees a flyer for a after Thanksgiving sale. So she comes up with the idea of what if we open at midnight on Thanksgiving night and we call it Black Friday and we just (laughs) sell everything and they all think she's crazy. No one's going to come to a a store at midnight, but she says this is what's going to happen. At this point, Phyllis shows back up. Now she's kind of like the philanthropic part of her has taken over. So she's wanting to show support for these poor little misfits that are trying to do good. So she brings them all these little tiny fancy bottles of water that only like have two sips in them. Velda at this point kind of decides that she's over the rivalry. It's just not worth it anymore. She's much more focused on her team now. So Black Friday comes and it's this epic, you know, midnight chaos, whatever. But Velda is just in her element and just running the show like a like a Marine sergeant. It's a huge success. The store is saved. Velda is the hero. And then she grabs Wilton and kisses him on the lips and they become a couple and everybody lives happily ever after. (laughs) 
Velda Plender created Black Friday sales. Yes, yes, it's true. I did not expect the origin of Black Friday, your pitch, Jeff. You've amazed me. Jeff, (laughs) for somebody who, air quote, claims, close air quote, to not like Drew Beverly Hills, you sure mind those characters for an incredible universe. Notice that all of your characters are the bad guys in my movie. The true Beverly Hills people come in and like, oh, it's Phyllis again. And you're not supposed to like them at all. So I, I kind of downplayed that for you guys. But oh, I- thank you. <laughs> now, I have to say, as I was conceiving my sequel, I had a unique experience that has never happened in the history of this show. It just shows how deep I am into the true Beverly Hills rabbit hole. But one morning last week, I woke up having dreamt a prequel to Troop Beverly Hills set in the 1930s at the dawn of the Wilderness Girls organization. It was basically a remake of the 1989 film just in a pre-World War II era with Shelley Long playing her grandmother. And it also featured a young man who was an old school boxer for some reason, you know, putting the dukes up. I don't, needless to say, I did not choose to move forward with that bonkers pitch for my subconscious instead i bring you a much different story and as jeff mentioned perhaps a much more reverent story i bring you troop beverly hills 2 european jamboree (laughs) taking place in 1992 troop beverly hills has just won their third consecutive wilderness girls jamboree competition having become a disciplined unit who excel at outdoor activities with their own luxury lace style phyllis proudly reminds the girls about the three f's of wilderness survival which are have fun be fabulous and always fondue during their (laughs) after party at wolfgang puck spago restaurant it is explained that a few of the original troop have moved out of the beverly hills area lily the dictator's daughter was called away to lead her father's soldiers in crushing a revolution while emily moved to new york when her dad got a part in a broadway production of greece as vince fontaine and tiffany the plastic surgeon's daughter has gone into the witness protection program with her family after her dad botched a nose job for a mob boss formerly known as handsome johnny who put a hit out on dr honigman sorry we had to say bye to emily shulman (laughs) but we also learn that assisted troop leader annie herman is a hot dish around town appearing in the tabloids with many celebrity bachelors but if you ask annie she just thinks they're nice the nefflers were remarried at a ceremony on the beach in malibu officiated by famed hairstylist vidal sassoon (laughs) but fred's decision to diversify his business interests away from mufflers and get into the rollerblade business with which he has become quite obsessed is making phyllis a little annoyed she still loves him but she herself is clumsy on inline skates so as a result is spending less time with fred At the next troop meeting, the girls are welcoming a new member named Chelsea, played by a very young Reese Witherspoon, (laughs) whose parents just won the lottery and decided to move from Alabama to live the life of luxury in Beverly Hills, spending money extravagantly on ridiculous items from the Sharper Image catalog. Chelsea misses her friends back home and is resistant to make new ones, though she has a lot of southern charm and is a fantastic horseback rider. The next troop meeting is visited by the head of the Wilderness Girls, Frances Temple, who tells the girls that Given their continued excellence in the organization, they've been selected to represent the U.S. branch at an international jamboree in Paris, France, about which they are all thrilled. 
Except for Hannah, who's just struck up a romance with an overly confident boy named Chad and can't stand to be away from him for a minute. Plenty of hijinks ensue on the plane as the girls make the most of first class flying, with Tessa having decided to make a documentary film about the experience, exploring the psychological impacts of international travel. Upon arrival in France, the girls are instantly taken by the sights of the city, while at a designer clothing boutique, Phyllis meets an amorous and attractive Frenchman named Maurice, played of course by Gerard Depardieu, <laughs> who forcefully flirts with her, insisting that they must spend time together. Flattered, she turns him down, but can't help wondering, what if? At the hotel designated for the international troops, the girls from Beverly Hills assume they will be fast friends with the Parisian troop. And Chica, having recently earned her French cuisine appreciation patch, thinks she's qualified to act as interpreter, leading to many incorrect but humorous translations, which causes the Parisian troop to scoff at the, quote, American bimbos. At the International Jamboree, there are troops from all over the world, and of course, stereotypical representations of these nations. The Japanese troop is doing a martial arts demonstration. The Russian troop is using vodka to start a campfire. And the East German troop are just muscular boys in drag. Troop Beverly Hills is displaying their fundraising skills, explaining the finer points of event planning, the impact of celebrity booking, and a performance of their classic tune, Cookie Time. The demo is being filmed by Tessa's father, the movie director, with Tessa taking the reins as cinematographer. But the Paris troupe is determined to humiliate the Beverly Hills girls, dumping cookie ingredients like eggs, flour, and sugar on them during the performance. Afterwards, Phyllis tries to talk to the Parisian troop leader to smooth over the rivalry, but Mademoiselle Estelle played by Angelica Houston, instantly takes a disliking to the American when Maurice, Phyllis's French admirer, turns up as the caterer for the event and reveals himself to be Estelle's ex-lover. The Frenchman's overt flirting with our favorite redhead causes Estelle to double down on defeating Troop Beverly Hills at the wilderness survival portion of the competition, taking place at the end of the week. While moping around a Paris City Park heartbroken, Hannah meets a French boy named Jean-Luc, who is much kinder than her American boyfriend, but is also very guarded, not allowing her to follow him home after their sightseeing dates in the city. Eventually, Hannah and the troops sneak out to follow Jean-Luc home, discovering that he is the leader of a group of street kids. <laughs> <laughs> The girls are very sympathetic to his situation, asking what they could do to help. They organize a fundraiser at the Arc de Triomphe, performing a new original pop song, The Boulangerie Boogie, <laughs> sung by Jasmine. Boulangerie being French for bakery, for those who don't know. After he shows up at the fundraiser looking to woo Phyllis again, uh, Phyllis kindly sets Maurice straight, explaining that she has a loving husband at home who may not be as suave, but is perfect for her. Phyllis instead suggests that Maurice employ some of the street kids in his catering business to give them a chance to have a normal life, to which he replies, For a fabulous woman like you, anything. Just then, Fred shows up, having flown in to cheer on Phyllis and Hannah. Maurice shakes his hand and says, You are a very lucky man, my friend. Never let her go. The next day is the wilderness survival portion of the competition, where the Paris troupe has planned to humiliate the Americans by setting traps along their route. Luckily, Troop Beverly Hills has Jean-Luc and the street kids on their side, who disable all the traps and reset them for the Paris troupe, which ultimately finds the snobs covered in escargot and caviar being licked by donkeys. <laughs> Of course, Trooper Beverly Hills wins the International Jamboree and celebrates with the street kids as credits roll.
So, we've heard some very exciting pitches, but now it comes down to the vote. Find out what we're going to take and do what we do. What is it we do? We're going to refine it. We're going to have some fun. So, Haley, how about for you? I mean, God, Jeff's pitches. I really love subverting Velda Plender as being the hero. I yeah. think that that is... I would I could watch the Velda Plender movie. I feel like Adam's European vacation version would probably be the more natural studio take. Because it's like with European vacation, you know. There is a precedent, absolutely. <laughs> There is a precedent and you really use all of the troupe instead of just the two women. So even though I like the dramatic tension of Neffler's Muffler's parking lot, <laughs> I feel like European jamboree might be the way to go. Woohoo! All right, Jeff, how about you? Well, adding to that, I feel like if I didn't pick Adam's pitch for this movie, he might <laughs> not come back to this podcast. So, yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's a, it's a shoe in. Oh, thank you. And now I, I have to say that Jeff, all this time, we've been doing this podcast for quite a while, and you've endured some of the best. Some Xanadu, you've joined me for Congo, and uh, you, you've shown yourself to be a true friend. And so I, I just, I want to mention that outright, make it very clear that Jeff Campbell Smith is a very fine friend indeed. <laughs> you could very well have fitted to Troop Beverly Hills and been a character there that I would have admired. So thank you, my friend. All right, so <laughs> that being the case, we have the European Jam. So the question is, is there something you feel like we need to flesh out a bit? Is there? Absolutely. Okay, hit us, Absolutely. Look, in Act 2, after we find out that the urchin boys, who are all grown-up gavroshes from (laughs) Les Miserables, that's how I'm seeing them, really. And they're, they're street urchins, right? They are going to need a pretty fabulous makeover scene, like on the Champs Elysees with the girls and Phyllis is going to have to give them completely fabulous looks. I'm also hearkening back just because we said it earlier, National Lampoon European Vacation has one of my favorite of all time wardrobe montages when Clark and the family, they have no clothes when they get to Italy and they have to go shopping for Italian, like high art, ridiculous clothing. (laughs) It's such a priceless 80s montage. This is where that needs to go. It's 92. There are MC Hammer pants to be had. There are bad ties. There's hyper color shirts. That's really a place where I think we can bring some life into this. And that could very well just be the trailer itself, is literally just the uh, the fashion montage. That would be wonderful. Very good. How about for you, Jeff? I was kind of curious about, like, I feel like you touched on, but it's the 90s. So in the early 90s, you're not really thinking about, should we really go into another culture and start telling them what to do? I don't think we had that problem in the 90s. Like, we do that all the time. So I don't know if we would have a little bit of that, you know, the... Wokeness? It's not just that they're from Beverly Hills, but they're Americans as well. It's not like they're necessarily sprinkling pixie dust on everybody, you know, because obviously the Paris troupe doesn't enjoy that 
them. And I feel like maybe there could be something in that, because again, they're not trying to change the culture of the street urchins, but they do want to help. So maybe there could be some resistance, you know, in that vein at first, because again, you know, you're saying Jean-Luc maybe is a little embarrassed. Maybe he, you know, doesn't want to take that. Maybe he uses it as kind of a, a source of like French pride or something, you know, because I, I did have this experience in high school where we had some French exchange students and I was producing a a piece for our student government elections because the incumbent was going to be in France with his family during the uh, the actual election. And so I got the French girls to be extras in his scene. <laughs> I, I had them like speaking French in the background, all this stuff. And I had a line where he said, you know, being in France really makes you appreciate being an American or something like that. It was really culturally insensitive. And the girls like turned around and called me out on that. They're like, yeah, you did not understand what it used to be French, isn't it? You know, like, they gave me this whole, like, speech. So I was like, oh, okay. So maybe there's certainly something we could do with that where the girls maybe are humbled. Although I don't I don't think they're not gonna, ever going to be intentionally pushy or culturally insensitive. But it, maybe it's there, again, like with Chica thinking she knows how to speak French. There's an assumption on the American side that they know what the French lifestyle is, and they certainly, you know, don't 100% understand it and did not understand that there would be even homeless people in France. You know, they maybe that's a big learning curve for them, which I think was a major topic in the early 90s as well, was homelessness. It still is, but I'm just saying I remember it being a very big focus in media. Say by the Bell had an episode, you know. Whoa, if Saved by the Bell talked about it. Dang. <laughs> A cultural touchstone for us all. <laughs> and then, yeah, the only other character who's not very well represented, other than, again, just kind of being evil, and I guess Velda wasn't super well developed. We don't know why she was the way she was, but was the, the leader of the Paris troupe, Mademoiselle Estelle. Yeah, but when you say that it's going to be played by Angelica Houston, I get it. <laughs> you can I get see it. it, right? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. It's Angelica Houston, who is half Angelica Houston from The Witches and half Angelica Houston from The Addams Family, but Correct. with a French accent. What else do you need? I see it. <laughs> well, I, I guess the, the, my only thing is I did envision her. Again, she's extra upset because she's heartbroken because Maurice was no longer with her, you know? So it's just like there's a little vulnerability to her character that Velda never had. Like, well, I guess Velda does when the Red Feathers abandon her. There's a little bit of that where you see she, you know, Cleo! I was in labor with you for 17 hours! <laughs> My son left me with a broken leg on a trail. I would murder him. <laughs> the film wants us to believe it's comeuppance because she trained her that way, but still. But yeah, so I guess, can you guys think of a better title than European Jamboree? Because I, I was really trying to, I was like, international affair or, you know, just like uh, something bad, but that's too too dramatic, you know? European Jamboree. I like it. I'm a big yeah. title person. I'm a huge title person. For example, the movie Tag should have been called You're It. Tag is stupid. You're It is smart. Probably still wouldn't have saved that movie. I like European Jamboree. We don't need no stinking passports is really ah, there we go. the tagline <laughs> for this movie. And that's true. I, I didn't really expand on some of the supporting players either, but they, they have to be there. You know, Rosa has to be there and, and Anne 
Annie has to be there, but to be honest, the other tagline for the posters could be it's baguette time. Done. <laughs> I see the poster. The other thing is I didn't cast Jean Luc. Oh, easy, easy. I got this. I got this. I got this. It's Jonathan Brandis. Oh. You think he could put on a French accent? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if he could be a girl in Ladybugs, he could put on a French accent. That guy was talented. And if all else fails, you just dub him. Yeah. Or very young Vincent Perez. Vincent Perez, for those of you who don't know, is a very attractive French actor. Google him. Uh, <laughs> he's in a movie called Le Reine Margot, Queen Margot in the 90s. Monica Bellucci. It's a lot of attractive people is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's not Monica Bellucci, but it's somebody else attractive. Just trust me. All right. Well, I'm up for that. I mean, I'm always up for some more Jonathan Brandis. You know, we lost him too soon. So if we could have gotten him in this movie, just would have been lovely. And so, all right. Well, the other question is this was my suggestion because sometimes we get into directors and i actually was listening to an interview today shelly long did not have a good experience with the director jeff canoe i don't know if that's how you say his name but it's like k-a-n-e-w and uh, so i don't think he would be brought back especially with her you know pulling the strings the second time around most likely but betty thomas who played yes. velda is a, a very director. accomplished director yeah yes so let's yeah. bring her back i mean she did like the brady bunch movie she did the chipmunk squeakquel most she, recently and she <laughs> does a lot of television directing she's she and velda was the last role she played before she fully transitioned into becoming a full-time director so i think she directs this one she's not 100%. in it but she's having a great time and yes, yeah, so I think we could we could have a lot of fun with that. So yeah, there it is. I mean, like you said, the poster kind of creates itself. I mean, you don't have to do much with that. It's it's the early '90s, so you're just gonna have the Eiffel Tower in the background, of course, <laughs> and and all the girls are there. But yeah, there'll probably be. I think it'd be awesome if yeah, from the fashion montage, they're all wearing those like crazy outfits, you know, because that's why you know this. It's high fashion. It's high time. It's you know something like that. But yeah, so, True Beverly Hills, oh, coming back around. If you have not seen this film, please go find it for yourself. Do yourself a favor. You don't have to get a VHS copy like me. It's on DVD. It's on Blu-ray. You can stream it. You will have a great time. Tell us how much you love it. But like I say, once again, if you know where we can uh, get in contact with the members of the troop, I have a dream. I'm a simple man, but I have a dream. And I, I want to get my laser disc copy of the film it's an album sized cover i would like that to be signed by as many members of the cast as i can so if you can make that happen find me on twitter at hojukulander find the show at sqpod i am more than happy to accept those opportunities and the shipping charges <laughs> so please let me know but Haley, this was so much fun such an honor there's no better person for the show show obviously <laughs> truly an honor and if all things come full circle and hollywood forever does true beverly hills which they have not the cast sometimes will come and introduce the movie so i will give you a heads up i will purchase the tickets i will take that laser disc myself i will march it up to jenny lewis for <laughs> Thank you, you. 
and such a pleasure to be on this. I had so much fun. This was fantastic. You're doing the Lord's work, Adam and Jeff. <laughs> we respect all the real writers out there, and we're, we're just throwing our hat in the ring every once in a while, just in case we can help the process along. <laughs> uh, see some of our favorite films make it back to the big screen. But uh, Haley, if people want to get in touch with you, if people want to find out what you're doing, where can they find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Haley Terrace, H-A-Y-L-E-Y-T-E-R-R-I-S. I spell it out because a lot of children from the 80s are named Haley and they spell their name wrong and I don't. Um, <laughs> I also have a podcast that's going to be launching, I hope, in April. It's called Anchor Watch Below Below Deck. And it takes an inside look into the hidden jewel in the Bravo reality TV crown, a show called Below Deck, which is like, just imagine for yourself an upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey on the high seas with garbage people. And I do that with my friends, Amy Height and Natalie Gregory. So that will be launching no pun intended soon and it's a great time you don't need to know anything about the show it's better if you don't and uh, maybe we'll have you guys on as well hey we love it we can throw out nonsense with the best of them and that's absolutely what we'd be doing so (laughs) that sounds great well until next time hope you enjoyed this episode of sequel quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was share your ideas with the sequel quest universe by visiting sequelquestpod.com following us on twitter at sqpod on facebook by searching sequel quest or sending an email to sequelquestpod at gmail.com let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five star rating on itunes All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 